A very good morning. It's really good to have you with us this morning, and a very warm welcome to Crescent Church. This morning, we're continuing our series looking at the book of 1 John, and Dan Lannan is going to be speaking to us on chapter 5, the first 12 verses of chapter 5, and his title is God's Testimony. Before Dan comes to speak to us, uh, Catherine Dilworth has kindly agreed to read today's passage for us. Thank you, Catherine. We're reading from 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God that he has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Good morning. Um, Thank you very much, Catherine, for reading. So we're nearing the end of our series in 1 John. Uh, We actually only have one more week to go after this one. Um, And if you've been here for the last number of weeks, you'll already be noticing that John keeps up keeps bringing up the same words and ideas, things like love, life, obedience, the family of God, and Jesus' incarnation. These themes keep coming up again and again as John connects them in different ways and talks about them in different ways. A lot of this seems circular. You know, one idea leads to the next, leads to the next, and can can feel a bit jumbled. It can feel a bit tangled. And for those of us who like a good, solid, linear argument to follow, John can get a bit frustrating. Now in chapter 5, it happens again. But before we tie ourselves in knots trying to connect all the little pieces, or before we tune out because here's yet another sermon where John talks about love and John talks about life, we need to step back a wee bit and think about what John is doing. And I've left the clicker for the PowerPoint down here. So, brief walk. And it works. Um, So major disclaimer before this metaphor. Um, If you know me at all, uh, you know I'm about as cultured as a goat. Um, And I'm happy enough with that. Um, I can't manage to clap to a beat, never mind appreciate good music. Um, Our four-year-old Nathan has already worked this out. Um, And after hearing me sing, he'll sometimes feel he needs to encourage me about things I'm good about. He'll start saying things daddy's good at. Um, But 
someone I, I work with, um, she's about to leave work and go and take up a scholarship to do a master's in art in London. Um, she is very cultured. Her boyfriend also works in the same department. And one day I came in and she was looking at a picture on, on the screen and it looked like she was looking at a picture of the top of his head. Um, so I joked, you know, it's a bit mean to keep track of his balding like that. Um, and she looked up confused and a little insulted. What she was looking at was a print of a painting that she had just sold for 5,000 pounds. <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, it looked like a bold spot, but someone paid 5,000 pounds. All that to say, I don't know anything about art, and this is all from Google. So in the last 30 years of his life, Monet, who was a famous painter, basically stopped painting all the things he painted and instead focused on the water lilies in his pond. He painted these same lilies, this same pond, 250 times in 30 years. Different times of the day, different light, different perspectives, but the same subject, the same lilies, the same pond, and they're all very famous. And I think that's a bit like what John is doing. He's not building a linear argument, and he's not just repeating himself. These wonderful truths, the love of God, the life he calls us to, the obedience he asks of us, these truths have so gripped John, they have so captivated his imagination that he keeps coming back to them. He keeps painting the same scenes from different angles in different lights. And maybe that's part of what he's trying to do for us. He's not only trying to convince us of something, to teach us something, he's trying to make us feel. He's trying to inspire us. He's trying to provoke in us a sense of beauty of these things that have so captivated him. He's not only trying to captivate our minds, but our hearts, our wills, our sense of wonder and beauty. And as we come near to the end of this series, it's important we're attentive to that. And for those of you who are here for the first service, isn't that what we did? We were captivated in our hearts. We were captivated by beauty. Um, and that's what John is doing. So as we approach the passage, if you quickly scan the text, you'll see it splits largely into two sections. In verses 1 to 5, John paints this dynamic and beautiful picture of the Christian life. He returns to themes of belief, love, and obedience. He asks, what does life look like when someone believes that Jesus is the Son? What does faith do in a life? Then in verses 6 to 12, he shifts to using courtroom language. He takes us to a scene in which God presents three witnesses that testify in defense of the claim that Jesus is his son. So John was writing his letter to people who already believed, people who had already come to know Jesus. But for people who don't yet know Jesus, it maybe makes more sense to take these questions the other way around. First, why should we believe? And then, what does belief do in a life? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with 6 to 12 and then come back to 1 to 5. So we're starting in the courtroom. Let's read 6 to 12 briefly again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. 
and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, that, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So this is the courtroom scene. The trial revolves around the claim that Jesus is the son of God. We see that in verses 1 and verses 5 and throughout this section. On one side, you have the false teachers. You'll remember them from the other weeks in this series. These are the men who have been troubling the church John wrote to. Remember, in chapter 2, they denied that Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter 4, they denied that he had come in the flesh. And look at verses 9 to 10. On the other side of the courtroom is God the Father. And in verse 7, he calls three witnesses to testify the spirit, the water, and the blood. So that's the scene. But who are these witnesses? The spirit is the easiest of the three to decipher. John is saying that the Holy Spirit testifies to the sonship of Jesus. During Jesus' earthly life, the power of the spirit showed him to be the son. And today, the continued witness of the spirit draws people to Jesus and convinces them of that truth. We'll come back to this. But what about the water and the blood? Whatever John's referring to, his audience obviously knew what he was saying. He doesn't stop, he doesn't explain it to us, so it's not as obvious to us. And Bible interpreters throughout history have, have had a couple different ideas, and I'm not gonna go into them all, because most of them come back to make the same point. And the most commonly held view and the one I think makes the most sense is that both of these witnesses speak about the life of Jesus on earth. The water refers primarily to Jesus' baptism and the blood to his death. Taken together, they refer to Jesus' entirely earthly ministry, to his life. So God calls up his first witness to take the stand, the water. We read in the Gospels that at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This began his public ministry, and after this he went out in the power of the Spirit. He miraculously showed he had authority over nature, authority over sickness, authority over the forces of evil, even over death itself. And his teachings showed he knew the very mind of God. He revealed the personality, the nature of God to mankind. So the water speaks to the affirmation and approval from God which Jesus received at his baptism. And then the continued authority and power in which he walked from that point on. It testifies clearly that Jesus was the representative, the Christ, the beloved Son of God. God then calls his next witness to testify, Jesus' blood, his sacrificial death. This also testifies that he is God's Son. 
And at this point, this is when John's opponents, this is when the prosecution stands up to object. Look at verse 6. John says, Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood. John's opponents wouldn't have minded if it was only water. They wouldn't have minded if there was only the witness of the water to speak about Jesus. They didn't object to that. They objected that he came by water and by blood. But why? If you're a parent, you'll likely relate to that feeling, and I'm not talking about me here, but you're in a public setting with your family, and it seems like everyone else's kids are wonderful. They're engaging in engaging conversation with adults. They're helping younger kids. They're washing dishes while reciting Bible memory verses. <laughs> and then there's your toddler, the rough one, the whiny one, the stubborn one, the tantruming one, whatever. This is not me I'm talking about, it's you guys. Um, and even if you know it's not really the case, and even if you know that toddlers are toddlers, and a lot of the time there's not much you can do about that, it's hard not to feel like your kid's behavior reflects on you as a parent, reflects on you as a human being. Whether it's fair or not, we often feel like a child reflects something of their parents. Or even more of us can probably relate to the very stressful situation where you've just sent a message or a text or a letter to someone you like. Maybe you're asking them on a first date or telling, you, telling them that you like them or whatever. Um, I've seen a wonderful video not too long ago. Um, someone I, who will remain nameless, and they've given me permission to say this. Well, this nameless person recently married my sister, Colleen. Um, <laughs> and there's a great video of this nameless guy literally rolling about on the floor moments after sending an initial message to Colleen. He's in agony waiting for her to reply. And to be fair, I don't think most of us in that situation are any different. We're, we're the same. Unless you're much cooler and more confident than most of us. And even if you're only sending a two-line text message, you pour over it. You write it. You rewrite it. And most likely, the moment you send it, you regret it. And did you come across too interested, not interested enough, too cold, too formal, too casual? Why do we care so much? It's because the message you, you send reflects on you. It represents you. They make judgments about you because of your message. A message communicates about its sender. John is claiming, and Jesus himself claimed, that Jesus is both the beloved Son and the Word, the ultimate communication from God. He's both the Son and the message from God. In the Old Testament, the idea of being the Son of God meant being His beloved representative. Israel was called the Son of God. David gets called the Son of God. But Jesus took this idea even further. He said, I don't just represent God, but somehow He claimed that He shared in God's very nature. He claimed that He was one with God, that the Son was in the Father and the Father in Him. The Son is God. So you see, in John's courtroom, if Jesus is found to be the Son of God, then He is the ultimate communication about God. He is God's greatest message to humanity. The Son of God reflects the personality, the nature, the very heart of God the Father. Everything Jesus did and said, and how He did and said those things, tell us what God is like. 
So the false teachers didn't mind the water's testimony. They didn't mind a son of God who shows the Father to be powerful and wise and just and good. But they couldn't stand the testimony of the blood. As we've seen in our previous weeks, they denied the incarnation. They denied the fact that, was, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. They denied that God became mortal. And there's nothing more mortal than to die. The testimony of Jesus' blood is that God became weak. God suffered. He gave up control. He was dragged along. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was humiliated. His body was torn and broken. The testimony of Jesus' blood is that God himself died. These false teachers, they want a spiritual God. They want a powerful God, yes, a wise God, yes, but one that is somewhat distant and remote, removed from the physicality, removed from daily life. John has shown us, and ultimately Jesus' blood most profoundly shows us, that God is love. God is involved. Remember last week? God is close to us. He became one of us so as to be close to us and bring us close to him through his death. Jesus' blood testifies that God shoulders the responsibility for the creation he loves. Because he loves us, because he knew we could never break the chains of sin and darkness that hold us away from him, he did not want us to suffer, so he suffered. John has already said this in chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The false teachers just didn't understand God the Father. The blood of Jesus speaks out loudly in the courtroom and testifies that yes, he is the Son of God. He perfectly reflects the character of God the Father because God the Father is the source of real love. Of course, his ultimate word, his message, his son, would shoulder the task of costly, courageous, sacrificial love. For these are the three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and they are in agreement. Together, these three witnesses testify that Jesus is God's son. Then the trial comes to a close with 11 to 12, with the testimony of God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Maybe you're unsure about the claims that Jesus made, the claims that the Bible makes or that Christians make about Jesus. Maybe you're here because you want to investigate those claims, or maybe you think you've already investigated and already rejected those claims. But if these three are the witnesses that God chooses, then to investigate Jesus or to reject Jesus, we first have to listen to them. So first, read the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And as you do, realize that this man, Jesus, claims to reflect the very heart and personality of God. In his teachings and actions, we see what God is like. And then two, Consider the death of Jesus, what it means for there to be a God who shoulders the responsibility for
for the failures and sin and suffering of this world because He loves it, who, draws to, who drew to Himself all sin, all darkness, and then dies and rises again, and in doing so breaks the power of sin, death, and evil. And then third, Jesus is still alive and active through His Holy Spirit. So ask God the Father to reveal the truth of Jesus to you through the Spirit. And if you've heard the witness of these three things, of the water, the blood, and the Spirit, then you've truly investigated Christianity. And then, and only then, in a way, have you the right to reject it, if you still can. And briefly, for those of us who are Christians, who follow Jesus, do we testify like this? Do we speak like this, like these three? Do we point to them? If we have an opportunity to share our faith, if we are asked about Christ, do we focus on the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the reality of the continued presence and power of God in the Holy Spirit, which leads people to Jesus? Or do we reduce all that Jesus is, all that He has done, to a brief, brief equation, to maths? Allowing these three witnesses to speak, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, it takes longer. It's not as neat. It's not as easy. But John says that's what God chooses to testify about His Son. So now back to the start of the chapter, verses 1 to 5. So John continues some of his argument from last week about love, but see how he does it. John uses verses 1 and 5 to frame this section with the same idea, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This section is about what happens to a life when someone believes that Jesus is the Son. What happens to us when, that, when we believe that? He is painting a picture of the Christian life with these same themes, these same scenes that he's focused on throughout his book. Imagine if you stopped someone in the street outside and you said to them, here's a pen, draw a diagram of what Christians believe their lives to look like. If for some crazy reason they don't just walk away, maybe they would draw something a bit like this. Basically, someone's life starts at that side they're living, they go on living, and then they meet Jesus. They come to a point, they believe Jesus, they're saved. Then they go on living their life, and eventually that line is broken again by death. After death, because they believed, a Christian enters heaven or eternal life. Obviously, this is an oversimplification and a caricature, but at least in society at large, that's roughly what people would say a Christian thinks their life is. But what does John paint? What does John say the Christian life is? So let's look again at verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Central to John's vision of a believer's life is love. 
When we believe in Jesus, we are born of God. We are born into God's family of mutual love. In this family, we are loved by God. We love him. We love his children, and they love us. Everything else flows out of the Father's love. All obedience, all desire and power to overcome, they're rooted in the love that the Father has for us. Then from the second half of verse 3, you have this group of ideas all connected to overcoming the world. Let's unpack that a bit. Remember, this idea of the world has come up a few times already in John's letter. He doesn't mean the earth or the globe. They're not evil or bad. Because you remember a key argument for John is precisely that Jesus came physically with a real body in the physical world. The physical world is not the enemy. That's not what he's talking about. We saw some of what he means in chapter 2. This is verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it comes not from the Father, but from the world. When John speaks of the world, he means the world of humanity trapped in sin, under control of the evil one. Like he writes in chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world is under control of the evil one. The world is a thing that has desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So what does that actually look like if we could overcome that? So say I'm a Christian living my life, but I can't help but keep loving the world. I have its desires in me. My flesh, my body wants things, and I have, pa- and I have little power to do anything about it. Tiredness automatically makes me angry. Hunger automatically makes me greedy. Sexual attraction automatically makes me lust. Then the desire of the eyes. I want what others have. I want more. I want better. I'm bored. I'm never satisfied. I live my life in pursuit of gaining things and experiences, whatever my eyes desire. And then the pride of life. I always have to look the best, be the best, be the funniest, the center of attention, the most spiritual, the most Christian. These things, the desires of the world, can completely dominate a person's life. But imagine breaking free. Imagine a life where you could just say no, where you could overcome all of that. Ultimately, overcoming the world is overcoming all that ties us to the darkness and keeps us under control of evil. But how? That sounds great, but how? Back to John's painting. Look at verse 4. God's commands are not burdensome, for everything born of God overcomes the world. Some translations say everyone born of God, but more literally, the original text says everything. And that makes sense in the sentence because he's talking about commands. The commands are not burdensome because they overcome the world. The Father who loves us and created us has in His love given us commands. He's shown us how to live. And although that might sound like a burden, it is freedom because it is through this obedience that we overcome the world. But look at what else John says in verse 5. The one who believes will overcome. This time he is talking about people. God doesn't ask anything of us 
he doesn't empower us to do. Just like the love we have for all Christians is a certainty and will flow out of the Father's love for us, so the fact that we will overcome is a certainty and will flow out of the fact that we are born of God. It's inevitable. It will happen. We'll come back to this at the end. So John has painted the picture of a believer's life. What happens when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? But when we compare it to our life that we could draw on the street, there's some interesting things. There's something that we haven't unpacked yet. John hasn't mentioned heaven. He hasn't mentioned eternal life. But it is there. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Eternal life is in the Son. Whenever we believe in the Son and enter the family of God, we have the Son. He is our brother, our Christ, our King. We have him. Therefore, we have eternal life. John will take this idea further in verse 20 when he says Jesus is eternal life. And this completes John's painting in these verses. So when we look at these two visions of a Christian life, it's striking to compare when things happen. If you look at the lines, the two events there, one is past and one is future. We were saved in the past and we will go to heaven in the future. There's not much going on in the present. It's largely irrelevant. The past ensures the future and that's it. But look at the life that John has painted in verses one to five. There's a lot of present tense. A Christian believes, obeys, loves, overcomes today. All present tense, all now. And the most striking present tense is the has from verse 12. Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We have the Son now. We have life now. Eternal life is not only a future thing that starts after death. For John, eternal life is a present reality that we can begin to experience now if we have Jesus. You'll remember Danny Crooks mentioned this way back in our first sermon of the series. For John, eternal life is not just a future experience, but it's a whole category of life, a type of life, a life that can begin now. When I got engaged to Judith, our life looked really different than it looks now after we've been married for eight years. Back then, we didn't need to share our decision-making, our money, we didn't share a house, we didn't have kids, we didn't know each other like we do now. But in lots of ways, it was the same kind of life. We enjoyed being together and doing life together. We still laughed at the same things, we still got annoyed at the same things, we still had the same kind of hopes that we have now. Though engaged life was not the same thing as married life, one flows into the other. It was a continuation of the same kind of life, but just at its next stage. And I think that's a little bit like what John envisions when he talks about eternal life in the present tense. He knows that our future eternal life with Jesus, when we see him face to face, will be far greater than any Christian life now, but it will also be familiar. 
The same Jesus that we have and love now, we will have and love then. The same family of love, the same vitality and strength and courageous joy that allows us to overcome the world will mark our lives then. Eternal life after death is a natural continuation of the eternal kind of life now. One flows into the other like engagement flows into marriage. There's, of course, massive and beautiful change at that point, but there is comforting and solid familiarity as well. But look at the first image of the Christian life. You don't need a present tense at all. Remember in the courtroom, the false teachers didn't want the blood's testimony. But inside Christian culture, sometimes we don't want the water and we don't want the spirit. We're happy to have Jesus die for us, but we don't want his life before that, and we don't want his life after that. We don't want his teachings, we don't want his actions and what they mean for our lives now. And we don't want the spirit, the continued presence of God in the world in the present tense. We prefer our faith to all be past or future, nothing affecting the present. One author has an evocative line about this tendency, and he doesn't mean to be eh, disrespectful, but he calls people with this attitude vampire Christians. They only want a little blood for their sins and nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. That is a shocking way to put it, but maybe usefully shocking. Verse 7, these three testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. We can't pick and choose between them. The first diagram is like getting engaged and saying, thank you very much for the ring. Can't wait to live in that amazing house you're building. See you at the wedding. And then walking away with a ring and a promise and wanting nothing more to do with your fiance to the wedding day. But the goal of the Christian life is not heaven, it is Jesus. Christian, don't settle for that first life. Yes, there's truth in that line, and maybe it's fine to start there, we all do, but don't stay there. Don't be content there. John is so captivated by the love of God, by the life he holds out to us in his son, that he can't help but keep coming back to these scenes. Throughout his letter, he paints them again and again, not only to teach us things, but to cause us to feel. Look at what he's painted for us in, in verses 1 to 5. I don't often live in this life, but John makes me want to. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to motivate us by the sheer beauty of it. This is a Christian life that is dynamic and energetic, appeals to the heart as well as to the mind. A life in which the love of God is enacted through his son. It causes us to be born into his family of love. Family in which we experience his love and love him in return, as well as his children. We obey his commands because we love him, and his commands are not burdensome, but through them we overcome the world. All that ties us to the darkness, we overcome it through his Son. All of this life is through the Son. We have life because we have the Son. He is eternal life. And of course, none of that is perfect now. We won't perfectly love we won't completely overcome. It won't be perfect until the day when our engagement flows into marriage 
and eternal life continues in resurrection. This is the life God, John is calling us to and that the Father is calling us to. So when we slip into living the first life, we need to let the beauty of the life that John has painted wake us up and call us back to live in it. And again, isn't that what happened to us in the breaking of bread? So John has made us want the life he has painted. But how do we get there? How do we get practical? It can seem to be really hard to get practical with passages like this, where one thing just seems to automatically flow to the next. It all just happens when we believe. But let's be honest, how's that going for us? How is this natural and inevitable process going? Do we see that flow in our lives? I think part of our problem, part of my problem, is that we don't realize that believing is practical. That is application. Belief in, in the first line is past tense. It's just mental agreement with a fact. That's all it is, mentally agreeing with a fact in the, t in the past. But that's not what John talks about. That's not what the Bible talks about when it says belief. To live a life that flows from belief that Jesus is the Son, we first have to believe it. That seems obvious, but it's important, and not only for people who have never believed before. Remember that the believe in verses 1 and in 5, they're present tense. They're today. Yes, we believed in the past and we were saved in the past, but this life we believe today. To live this eternal kind of life today, we believe that Jesus is the Son today. And of course, our hearts will drift, our focus will drift. We will fall, we will sin, we will stray back into living in that first picture of life. So we need to come back again and again to the witnesses of 6 through 11, to the water, the blood, and the Spirit, and let them convince us again, let them testify to our hearts again that Jesus' death, His life, and His continued presence through the Spirit, we need to let them convince us again to believe. And that belief is not just with our minds. We've already touched on this. Let the wonder of the love of God grip you. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. How sad would it be for us to get through an entire sermon series on 1 John and not be inspired to love God in response to His great love for us? We need to let the beauty of the life that John paints, the wonder of the love of God, grip our hearts. It's simply not possible to live the Christian life only with your mind. Of course, we need it, but we need emotion. We need thought to produce feelings. Yes, love is an action and love is obedience, but love is also in the heart. Have we grown cold? Can we read 1 John from start to finish without feeling anything? If so, we need to pray for the Lord to send the Spirit to direct our hearts back to Jesus, back to the love of the Father. Meditate on 1 John. Meditate on the three witnesses of 6 to 11 or the abundant life of 1 to 5 and let it stoke the smoldering embers of your affection back to life. These things are not optional for a Christian. They're foundational. Our hearts, as well as our minds, need to believe, and they will need reminded again and again. And finally, 
To live this kind of life, we need to actually do it. A theologian has a helpful line that defines true belief over mere intellectual agreement. To believe something is to act as if it were true. To believe something is to act as if it were so. In other words, believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that eternal life is in Him, that we are part of the family of God and that we can overcome the world through the fact that we are God's, believing these things is not about trying harder to feel more certain inwardly about them. To believe something is to act as if it's so. What would look different about your life if this was all true? If the testimony of the three witnesses were true? If it was true that we can, through the grace of God, live like verses one to five? Start small, start specific. What would be the difference to the rest of your day today, to this evening? What if it were true that eternal life stretched from today and that we can experience it by knowing and having Jesus? How would I spend my time this evening? What if it were true that the other Christians in this room are my family because God is our Father and the way I love you is showing how I love them? How will that affect how we talk to each other after the service? What if it was true that we can overcome the desires of the world we can overcome everything that causes us to fall into sin again and again, not perfectly. What if we could overcome that because we have been born of God? What habits would we seek to break if that was really true? Faith that means something is acted upon. When we read passages like one to five, they can seem troubling. It can seem that all we do is believe and everything will flow from that. And then when we do believe and we don't see fruit, it can, it can worry us. And sometimes maybe that's because our belief is stuck in past tense, or maybe it's stuck in our minds without touching our hearts. If we want something practical, belief, faith is practical. It's something we do today, something we have in our minds, in our hearts, in our will, in our bones, something we enact, something we live. So I challenge you, when you're alone at some point over the next couple of days, read chapter five, verses one to 12 again, believe it, and then think of small practical ways you can start living like it's actually true, like it's real. And we'll find ourselves living in John's painting of that life. So to finish. In six to 12, John took us to a courtroom and in one to five, he painted for us a beautiful life. Why should we believe in Jesus? We heard the testimonies of the water, the blood, and the spirit, who together declare him to be the son, and God testifies that life is in him. Then what happens when we believe? We are born of God, we are brought into his family of mutual love, and we are given commands and the power to obey those commands and they will, they will help us overcome the world, the darkness that holds us back from God. This life is available now. Eternal life is available now through Jesus. To have the Son is to have life. John wants us to keep coming back to believing in Jesus. He wants us to see the beauty of the life Jesus holds out so that that beauty will captivate us and inspire us to act as if it's really true.
I'm going to pray to finish our service. I'm sorry for going over a wee bit, um, but there's tea and coffee out here, um, but I'll pray as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you testify, you show that he is your son and that there's life in him. Convince us, Lord. Convince us through the life, the death, and the continued presence of Jesus through the Spirit. Convince us that he is the Son of God and that life is in him. Inspire us with the beauty of a life we can have with you, an eternal kind of life we can enjoy now with you. Change our hearts, Father. Thank you for this. Thank you for the wonderful salvation, the wonderful life you hold out to us. Captivate our hearts, Lord. Change our lives. Make us look more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.